You know, um, Sundays are an opportunity for us. We get together not of obligation, but we get together because we can. Because God has made a way for us to, to now fellowship with Him in a unique way on Sunday mornings. And it's a privilege to gather together and it's a joy to be with you. And I'm glad that you are here. You know, often it's hard to rouse yourself from bed on a Sunday morning, especially when it's raining. Thank you for doing that. Um, God promises to meet His people in a special way when we, when we honor Him with all that we do and, and don't forsake the assembling together. So thanks for being here. Thanks for honoring God. Um, are you hearing a little bit of feedback in the back or is it just me? A little teeny bit maybe of feedback? All right, excellent, thank you. Well, turn your Bibles to Matthew 17. We are just a few weeks away from wrapping up our series on the parables and miracles of Christ. Um, we have been going through for about six months or so. In the new year, um, sometime in January, We'll be heading into the book of Romans, but for now, we get to continue to see Jesus for who he is, what does it look like to live in his kingdom, and then how does the king equip us to live in his kingdom? So let's look together at God's holy inspired word in Matthew 17. This is God's word. When they came to Capernaum, the the collectors of the half shekel tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From who do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea And cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for accounts like this that that show us, Lord, who we are. That show us that we are free as your children. But Lord, they also show us how we as your children are to live and they show us the fact that you will provide for us as your children. God, I pray for each and every one of us that we might hear your word, that we might apply it to our hearts and minds. God, would you not let us walk away being like a man who just, who looks in a mirror and forgets what he looks like, Lord, but let us be appliers, doers of your word. Let's listen intently to your word, God, I pray. Let us Listen to your words that we might apply it to our hearts. God, we know that only that can happen by your Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, we ask you to come. Lord, would you fill me as I speak and would you be with each and every person here? Would you fill all of us to hear from you? Open up our eyes, open up our minds and hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, imagine that you lived under the reign of a despotic, tyrannical king. You know, I was, I was reading recently about the, the medieval ages and how they, they weren't really what most people think they are, but there were many kings during those times who, who were despotic, who were tyrannical, who, were, who lived cruel rules or lived in a way that they ruled cruelly. And imagine that if you lived in this, under this despotic king, that everything that you did would be shaped by 
how you related to that king and that kingdom. And so you would have a fear, really, of being punished. And you would have a fear of punishment would lead to certain behaviors. You would, you would hide who you maybe truly were. You would act in a different way. You might even, if you knew that the king would steal things from you, be in, inclined to hide things and keep things to yourself. Your fellow man, you might not be so generous then, but then you might become selfish and self-centered and self-focused. Kind of keeping things to yourself. Fear of losing everything would drive you. Maybe you would have be driven by the motto of looking out for number one. Then imagine that you're a part of that kingdom and then you get word from a messenger from a far off land who comes and tells you that you, you really are a child of a far off kingdom. You are a child of a king. And this king is an all good king and he has a vast kingdom with unending unsearchable wealth and this this king is all powerful and so all those who live in his kingdom can live without fear of any other kingdoms because this king is able not only to provide but to protect and and he's a benevolent king and then you get the message as well that you are the child of this king it it would change how you live wouldn't it? it it would change how you related to the world around you it would change what you did with your resources, it would free you up to live a life where you didn't have to live in fear anymore. We didn't have to wonder or worry about what would come next for you. It would free you up and you would want the people in the kingdom that you were a part of to come and join you in your father's kingdom. You say, hey, you don't have to live this way. You can live in my father's kingdom. Come with me. And, and you would begin to actually want to give of the wealth that your father had given to you to the people in your kingdom. You'd be free to no longer be driven by self-protection, self-preservation. You'd be free to not worry about what people thought about you. You'd be free to not, not have to feel like you had to protect everything that you had and keep everything that you had. You'd be free to actually live joyfully, inviting others to enter into your joy. That's kind of what this entire passage is really about. Jesus uses this little interaction He uses this little interaction, this seemingly insignificant interaction to teach Peter some really massive truths. You know, it's one of the shortest parable miracles because Jesus has a little parable and he does a miracle in in just three verses. But he teaches Peter some things that really stuck with Peter later on in life and they stuck with all the rest of the apostles as well. And they're massive truths. Massive truths in a small parable miracle. And it's It's really the main idea is that the children of the king are free. He wants Peter to see that. He wants to connect up the fact that, Peter, you're not under obligation to give. You're not under obligation to pay this tax because you're a son. And he says, because if you're a son, then you're free. And so Jesus is getting across this main idea that the the children of the king are free. But here's the other thing he gets across to Peter. They're not just free to live for themselves. They're free to live for him. You know, the illustration I use, if you are part of, an, of a despotic kingdom and under a, a tyrannical king, you wouldn't be free to live for the good king, right? But if you were delivered out of that dark kingdom and brought into this kingdom of light, now you would actually be free to live for him. And so Jesus is saying the sons of the king, the children of the king, they're free and they're free to live for him. You don't have to. You don't have to give, you don't have to serve, you don't have to lay down your lives, but you get to do that because that's the nature of the king and you're free to live for the king, to live for him. And then the third main idea is trusting in him to provide. 
So there's a lot packed into these very short verses that the children of the king are free to live for him, trusting in him to provide. And we're going to go through all three of those ideas here. The children of the king are free. They're free to live for him. And they're free to trust in him to provide. Now, look down in verses 24 to 26. This is really the main content of the passage. And, 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 and Jesus focuses on this. He uses this small illustration, and I love how brilliant Jesus is to use everyday interactions to point us to deeper, massive realities. You know, God intends that for you and I too. He intends for us in everyday realities to see his glorious truths that that transcend those things. So looking down at verses 24 to 26, the main part of the passage we're going to see is that the children of the king are free. Just prior to this passage, a little background, Jesus had been talking to his disciples just a couple verses earlier, and he said, the Son of Man is going to be delivered over to the hands of man, and he must be killed and raised again. And then it says the disciples reacted. They were deeply distressed. So why in the world? Whenever you read the Bible, you have to wonder, why, why is the Bible, why are the stories, why are accounts put in the places they are? Why do the apostles, why do the disciples, why do they put certain accounts in and leave other things out? You know, after all, there's more things that Jesus did than it says that, that could be written in all the volumes in a library. I'm paraphrasing. But why did the disciples, why are the apostles, why do they put things in certain places? Because they were driving home a point. And so right after Jesus is talking about the fact that he's going to have to be handed over to the sons of, of men to, to be killed and be raised, he then gives them some assurance in this miracle. And Matthew wants us to see that. He wants us to see that our hope is that we're children of the king and that we're free to live for him, and we can, we can trust that he's going to provide. Because he's risen, because he's reigning and ruling, we can trust he's going to provide for us. Jesus is probably the kind of setting here. I love you can kind of picture the scene in your mind. Capernaum was, was really had become the hometown of the disciples. It was where Peter's house was. It was where Jesus' base of ministry was now. And so they're coming back from a couple years of ministry out and about, and they're coming back into Capernaum. They're gathering together. They're coming into town. Um, Jesus may have gone before Peter, gone into the house, and that's the setting here, is that they're going in through town, and as they go into town, Peter passes by these tax collectors. Now, you have to know that these tax collectors were not Roman tax collectors. That's important in a moment. They weren't, they weren't seen as traitors. These were the good guys. They were good tax collectors, if you can imagine that. Um, you know, maybe um, a parallel would be, um, imagine the, the ushers here, they, they're good guys, they're taking up an offering because they're wanting to support the work of the Lord. That's what these tax collectors were. They were actually Jewish temple tax collectors who were taking up an offering in order to give towards the maintenance in, of the temple. You know, Exodus 30, God had commanded Moses to have Aaron um, make atonement for the people by, by sprinkling the blood of bulls on the horns of the altar and after that atonement he asked the people of Israel he says um, he, he wanted them to make um, this payment as a ransom as a ransom and it was kind of that that led to this historical practice where by Jesus time it was an annual tax and so they were taxed annually 
And it was costly because of all the requirements they already had. They already were, were called to give 10% of all their income. In addition to that, they gave it many different seasons and offerings. And then they also had to give to the Romans as well. So it was not insignificant. It was costly. It was probably a couple days wages. And they come up to him and they say, does your teacher not pay the tax? You know, maybe, maybe they kept records, the temple tax. You know, although it was voluntary, they kept records of who were really the good Good believers, you know, in this church we, we keep records but not to see who's the good believer. We keep records so that you can get a tax deduction at the end of the year. But Aaron and I don't see those records, just so you know. But um, the wonderful thing is that these men were not motivated by trying to make people feel bad. They were motivated by trying to help the temple and trying to say, let's, let's perpetuate this system of worship. They were devout Jews. But they came up to Peter. I wonder, why did they come up to Peter and ask him if Jesus paid? Well, Jesus was likely staying at Peter's house, and it would have been rude for them to come up to a guest in someone else's house and ask them if they were paying. So they came up to Peter and said, hey, does your guest, does your teacher, does he pay this tax? And maybe also it would have been kind of a, a reminder or somewhat accusatory reminder of, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Is, it, is he orthodox? Because whether you paid the tax or not would have been really a te- seen as a test of your orthodoxy. If you're really a devout Jew, you're going to give towards the temple tax. Now, you can claim to be a Jew, but we don't respect you if you don't give. That was kind of the, the message that they were getting across here. And look down your Bibles in verse 25. What does Peter answer? He doesn't go and ask Jesus what Jesus thinks. Peter's kind of impetuous. He, he says, yes, he pays, he pays the temple tax. Yes, he pays. And then he comes into the house. And you get this idea that Peter comes into the house and Jesus has probably got this smirk. Maybe, you know, it doesn't say that in the scripture, but he's got this smirk on his face probably. And he, he says, what do you think, Simon? And, and Peter's probably thinking, oh my gosh, that, that, that's a dangerous question. I've been in places where Jesus asked me what I thought and it didn't turn out too well. You know, and, and, he, and he's had times where Jesus has known what he thought. And so it's kind of a double-edged sword when Jesus asks you, what do you think? He says, what do you think, Simon? He says, from whom, look in your Bibles, from whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? Peter hadn't hesitated before. He might have hesitated now. You know, maybe he had seen Jesus pay the temple tax in in previous years. But when he gets home, he realizes Jesus is onto something here. Jesus is after my heart. He's trying to figure out what I think, but... I love how Peter, he doesn't have any guile, and he just says, from others. He's straightforward. It's a simple, straightforward question. It makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? You know, a king of the land collected taxes to support him and his family and the army and to support the protection of the kingdom. So if you were a king, or maybe going back to the illustration I used earlier, if you were the son of the king, um, it, it wouldn't make sense for the son of the king to pay taxes for his own upkeep, right? And so that's Jesus' illustration he's using is, if you're a king and you have a son, would, would you tax your son who you provide for from the taxes? Would you, would you tax them? It just kind of seems redundant, you know? You're taxing yourself so that you can provide for them. And he says, well, no, that's, that's clearly no king would ever do that. No good king would ever require payment from his children. I think for a moment, maybe, maybe by now, the, the truth is settling into to Peter. Of, 
Jesus is getting at something way deeper. The king, no king, requires payment from his children. Think about that for a second. Let this sink in for a moment. He says, he says Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. And if you aren't careful, you can just kind of gloss through this little short story and you can focus only on the miracle of the fish and the coin in the fish's mouth and Jesus' amazing, miraculous provision, but you can lose sight of the point that Jesus is trying to get at. He's trying to get at something here. The sons are free. This isn't just an esoteric riddle. Remember, this is a temple tax, not a tax from the Roman government. It's important that you see that as well. Why is that important? It's important because you need to see that Jesus is making a point about the temple tax and that you no longer, Peter, you are no longer under obligation to the religious system that the whole temple stands for. And if you think about it, if you begin to understand what Jesus really meant, those words would have been earth-shattering for any Jew in that day, and they're no less earth-shattering for us. He's saying, if, if you are sons of God, then you're free from the temple system and its requirements. You're free from the obligations of the law, any requirements of the customs of man. You are free. You do not have to pay your own ransom tax anymore, because remember, that was the origin of that tax. It was a ransom tax. Reminder yearly that they needed a ransom and it was a, a partial payment, and a down payment, an ongoing annual thing that they always had to perpetually be paying this ransom tax and be paying this atonement tax. And Jesus says, if you're a son, you're free from that. Think about that. That applies to you and I as well. If we're truly sons and daughters of the king who is the king of all kings, then we're free in regards to having to pay to earn our ransom. We're free in regards to having to pay for our atonement every year. And we're also free in regards to the the whole religious system of sacrifices and rituals and external laws that the temple stood for. And, And if Peter would have gotten it then, and he got it later, Clearly, but if Peter would have gotten it then, I think Peter would have said, whoa, Jesus, what you just said was truly astounding. Hang on. Are you saying that I'm free in regards to the law now? Because that's what Jesus is saying. He says, Peter, if you're a son, you're, no, you're free, you're exempt, is the word that, that's translated as. But every other time in the New Testament, I think it's used 16 times, 15 of the 16 times, that word is free. You're exempt, you're free. And we're free today in the sense that we no longer have to make payment to be atoned. We don't have to make payment in order to buy our own ransom. Maybe you're tempted to do that in subtle ways. Maybe you're tempted to think that I've got to make my daily ransom payment so your motivation for spending time with God is is less because you have a relationship with him and you want to get to know him and you want to understand his love for you and you want to... um, experience that in a deeper way, but maybe you're motivated when you get up in the morning and think, okay, I've got to pay my ransom. Or maybe you're motivated by your external behavior, which it won't last, by the way. If you're motivated by externalism and saying, well, you know what, I have to look good on the outside, I have to do good on the outside, I have to conform on the outside, because otherwise God won't be happy with me. And Jesus says, if you're a son, 
And that means a daughter as well, by the way. It wasn't exclusively men here he was talking to. Um, He used the word sons because only the males had to pay that temple tax as a representative head of the household. But it applies to sons and daughters. And so he said, if you're a son, if you're a child of God, if you're a child of the king, you have no obligations to pay him. You have no duties to pay him. You're not under obligation to earn your freedom, to earn your atonement, to earn your ransom. Christian, this morning, that's massive news for us. You don't have to pay your ransom and how you live. The king invites you into his kingdom, and he says, stop trying to pay me. It's ridiculous to try to pay me. I've made payment for you. And then now you get the connection that Jesus was making that Matthew was trying to make. Why does Matthew have this after Jesus is talking about his death and he has to be killed and then he'll be resurrected? Why? Because Jesus is saying, I'm going to make payment. and I'm going to be resurrected. And because of that, it has implications. You don't have to pay anymore. Is that, does that, doesn't just broaden your view of Scripture? Doesn't it broaden your view of this passage? Just three chapters later, Jesus makes that connection explicit, though. And he says the reason we don't have to pay a ransom price is because he came to give his life as a ransom for many. Look at Matthew 20, 28. We have up for you on the overheads. He makes it explicit that the reason he came, he says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. As a ransom for many, that same ransom tax that was paid, Jesus came to give his life as a final and full payment of that ransom so that we no longer have to try to earn our ransom or pay for it. Even after Moses, this temporary ransom payment, it wasn't enough. A a sin offering of blood still had to be made year after year after year. Under the law, Paul tells us we were captives, but Jesus came to buy us back to ransom us at the cost, as he tells us in Matthew 20, at the cost of his own life. Do you feel that God is not pleased with you? Do you feel like you have to earn your salvation? Do you feel somehow that whenever you sin, now you're in debt and you gotta, you got to pay God back because you've subtracted from that bank account. He's no longer pleased with you. Now you've got to pay him back for that ransom. If, if you're tempted to feel that way, you need to be encouraged from this scripture that if you're a child of God, you are free. You don't pay your ransom anymore. You're no longer accepted by God on the basis of anything you do. It's not based on your sacrifices. It's not based on how much you give or don't give. It's, it's not based on, on anything that you can do. Once you've been made a child of God, sons and daughters of God, you are free. Now, wouldn't that make you joyful? Going back to that illustration, if you were part of a despotic kingdom, an all, you were underneath an awful ruler, wouldn't you just rejoice if you got to go to another kingdom and live under the good, benevolent rule of a king who was your father and only had good for you in mind and, and had all provisions to be able to do that and had all power to be able to do that? Wouldn't you rejoice? Well, that's the truth of, of who we are. That's what Jesus is saying. Peter, you're the son of a king. You're free. This morning, God wants for each and every one of us to live with the joy of that freedom. 
to rediscover really our, our first love for the king that's based on the fact that he first loved us. Jesus is saying something monumental. The entire sacrificial system is no longer necessary. We don't have to pay. And more, more so than that, God's children are free. But then he gives some implications. What does it mean? If you're free, it would change the way you live. If you truly understood your freedom, it will change the way you live. If you're living under a dark kingdom if you're living under the iron fist of a ruler who only takes and takes and takes, you would feel this need to protect and to keep and to be selfish and lie and steal and keep to yourself and gather to yourself. But if you were made a, an heir of a kingdom where you never had to worry about provision, you'd be free to give. You'd be free to live differently. It would free you up not to be self-focused. And, and Jesus is telling Peter, he says, you're free. If you're a son, you're free. If you're a son or daughter, you're free. But it has some implications, Peter. You don't have to. You're no longer under obligations to the earthly systems of this world. You're not under obligation to the customs of this world. You're not under obligations to try to fit in. But now you're free to live differently so that others might come into the kingdom as well. And so we really see the second truth that Jesus is trying to tell them. And he says, the children of the king are, are free to live for him. That's what he's He's getting across here, that, the idea that's coming across. Look down your Bibles. He tells us in verse 27. He says, however, to, not to give offense to them. What's that, what's that saying? He, he's, he's speaking to the motives here. He says, however, not to give offense to them. He's speaking to motives of how they're living. And then he's speaking to what Peter's living for. Peter we don't want to be motivated by fear. We don't want to be motivated by obligation or duty. But Peter, I want you to be obliga- obligated by something different. I want you to, to live differently. I want you to live so that you, you don't give any offense to them. So why? So they can hear the same message. So that they can become children of the king. What was Jesus all about? He was all about, he says he came to preach the good news. And, and so he was concerned that nothing would get in the way of proclaiming this good news. Let no offense, Peter, get in the way of proclaiming my kingdom. And so he says, go to the sea, cast a hook, take the fish, the first fish that comes up, and when you open his mouth, you're going to find a shekel. And he's giving Peter a principle here that later Peter unpacks, and and all the disciples and the apostles, they understood this, this principle really is, now that we're free as sons, we should live in such a way that our lives... Don't needlessly cause offense to others. That our lives really speak of the goodness of the king. Doesn't mean that we hide the good news we've been given. You know, some people say, well, I don't want to offend people, so I'm not going to tell people I'm a Christian. That's not what Jesus is talking about. You know, I don't want to offend people, so I'm not going to really tell people what my stand is when they ask me about a moral issue and, and I'm, you know, I don't want to offend people, so I'm going to kind of water it down. I'm going to hide that issue. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to not really tell the truth here. So when they ask me what I think about a various topic, social topic, what do you think about abortion? What do you think about um, homosexual marriage? You know, I don't want to offend anybody. I just want to get along. So I'm, going to, I'm not really going to tell the truth. Well, that's not what Jesus is talking about. 
He's saying, I want to give offense, and he calls for offense that I don't want people to say that we as Christians don't keep the law, we don't live rightly, and I don't want to give a reason for an offense so that they won't hear the gospel message. Because think about it, Jesus didn't hesitate to offend people. And he didn't hesitate to offend the religious leaders. In fact, three different times in Matthew, and Matthew, I think it's Matthew 3, Matthew 12, and Matthew 23, we don't have time to read them, but three different times in Matthew, Jesus actually calls the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders, he says, you brood of vipers. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like to be called a, a venomous snake. You serpents, you brood of vipers, and he calls them hypocrites. That, I, I would have been offended. You know, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, those, those were the church leaders. And when, when I meet with somebody in the church and, and they think they have a prophetic ministry and they call me a, a snake, a viper, a hypocrite, I might be inclined to be offended. Jesus wasn't talking about the offense of the truth. He was talking about not living offensively. You see, as Christians, the gospel message, it will offend. If we proclaim the good news, the truth of Jesus Christ, it will offend. It will divide. But he's saying, don't be divisive and don't offend people when it's not about the gospel message. That's what he's saying. When it's not about the message of the kingdom, don't offend people needlessly. So that why? So that you can proclaim. So you can do what we came here to do. Don't give any cause for people to think that you're a lawbreaker and ignore your message because they think you can't be trusted. So why here is Jesus telling Peter his motivation was to not give offense to the temple tax collectors? Well, they weren't doing anything wrong. Peter would not have been disobeying God to give towards the upkeep of a system that has gone away. Just like um, we wouldn't be disobeying God if we gave towards the upkeep of this kingdom, this world that we live in, this country that we live in. We're, we're not disobeying God to give towards taxes, to give towards the maintenance of a system that is, it is not going to last. Jesus, though, didn't want them to be offended by how he lived. He didn't want to give them any reason to reject his message. And the apostle Paul, he picked up on that idea. I think he got it straight from Jesus, really. Look in, in 1 Corinthians 9.20. Uh, Paul kind of unpacks this idea that he got from probably Peter and from Jesus and from the other apostles and disciples. And he says, he gives this idea of not giving offense, right? So this idea of not giving offense, what does it look like in the life of one of Jesus' followers? He says, well, to the Jews, I became as a Jew. So when I was around the Jews, I fit in with them in a way that it wasn't in contrary to my, who I was as a Christian. It didn't violate God's laws. It wasn't hiding who I truly was. He says, in order to win the Jews. He says, to those under the law, I became as one under the law. He says, though not being myself under the law. And, and why? He says, that I, so he, he didn't want to cause offense. Why? Look down your Bible, it says, or up on the screen, it says, that I might win those under the law. But then he says, well, when I was out to acting towards those people who were outside the law, to Gentiles, he says, to those outside of the law, I became as one outside the law. We're like, well, Paul, isn't that hypocritical of you? You act one way around one group of people, act one way around other group of people. He says, no. What, what, what the principle here is, Paul is, is, is making sure that wherever it doesn't violate God's law, he fits in with the society, the culture around them in a way that um, isn't offensive. That's why if you go to the Pacific Northwest, you might wear skinny jeans if you're a guy. 
And if you're down here, you might not. I know it's a weak illustration. If you're in other countries, you eat certain foods, you don't want to cause offense, you have certain customs. In other countries, it's rude to shake hands, you don't do that. Here, if you don't shake hands, you might be considered rude. So here you shake hands, even if you're a germaphobe, because you know what? I don't want to give offense to people needlessly. I, I, I can keep hand sanitizer in my pocket, and when they don't look, I can you know, put it on. But, um, so when I, when I go to other countries, you know, I'll go by their customs so that I don't give offense based on how I act around them. Oh, even in this, own, this country, when you're around people of different ethnicities in this country, you know what? I don't have to... I don't have to try to be different in a bad way, but you know what? I'm going to just go by their customs. So if they do things a different way, I'm going to do things that way. Why? So that they might hear the message. He says, I might win those outside the law. I'll look down again in 1 Corinthians 9. It says, to the weak I became weak. What does he mean? That people had some conscience issues. He, he bowed to those conscience issues. As long as they didn't violate God's law. So that, why? He says, so that I might win the weak. You know, some people thought it wasn't okay to eat meat. He's like, fine, whatever, I'll, I'll be a vegetarian for the day, so I won't offend you. So you'll listen to what I say. I once really royally messed up with this. We had a friend who was a new Christian, and he just discovered lots of things about God, and, and someone had been telling him about the Old Testament laws and how now Christians need to live by this, and um, this is back when I had a college ministry when I didn't care about what anybody thought. And, and I actually violated this principle of not causing offense. And so he was telling me about how now he, he had been convicted. He didn't want to eat pork anymore. And I said, well, that's dumb. That's stupid. Don't you know about the whole Peter letting the blanket down and God letting the blanket down for Peter and saying, rise, kill, and eat. And, and I offended this brother deeply. And it got in the way of my effectiveness in, in, in winning him and in, in explaining the truth and being and discipling him. And it got in the way. And he's saying, don't, don't, don't cause offense like that. And look down back in 1 Corinthians, Paul goes to the back and says, I become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. Can that be said of us? Do you do it all for the sake of the gospel? Are you driven when you don't want to cause offense to someone else by the gospel? Or are you driven by fear of man or want to be, not wanting to be rejected by society? He says, do it all. Don't don't give calls for offense, but do it for the sake of the gospel. He says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in his blessings. He understood what it meant to be a child of the king. He says, I- I'm going to go and minister to the people in that dark kingdom, and I'm not going to cause offense. Why? Because I want them to come along. I want them to share in this blessing to see that there's another kind of king that they can live for. They don't have to live in that kingdom any longer. What drove Jesus and what drove the apostles was this message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the question for us is what drives us? And then what do we do with our freedom? What do we do with our freedom? You're a child of the king. But do you use the freedom to gratify yourself? Do you use the freedom to, to kind of hoard and keep things to yourself, to keep money to yourself? Because if you were a child of the king, you think, okay, wait a minute, if I'm a child of the king, then I'm no longer, um, I'm no longer under the authority of this kingdom, the United States. I no longer really am a citizen here, so I'm a sojourner. I'm, I'm a citizen of the heavenly kingdom. And so that means I shouldn't pay taxes. But really, that's just a motivation to keep things to yourself. And that's, that's going to cause offense. Well, it's going to cause offense to the government. It's probably going to cause offense to your neighbor who's paying taxes, too. What do we use our freedom for? 
as Christians, we're free to do lots of things, but not everything that we're free to do is helpful. You know, so Paul said, all things are lawful for me as a Christian. I'm free as a son, but it's not always helpful. Evaluate your own life. Am I living as a free son? First of all, that's the question, a free child, a free daughter. Are you living as a free child of the kingdom? If so, are you living in the good of your freedom? And then if so, don't put yourself back in bondage to self-focused, self-centered, selfish living. Live like you're really free. And then invite other people in. Don't cause offense. The message of the gospel is offensive, but we shouldn't give cause to anyone to reject the gospel because of how we live. 1 Corinthians 10, 23, Paul says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. You know, it's, it's lawful for me to protect my own property, it's lawful for me to, if, if a, an animal comes on my property and I feel like it's a threat to my children to, to actually dispatch that animal. But it may not be kind to my neighbor if it's their dog. It's just lawful, but we shouldn't give offense. Let's not just seek our own good, but the good of our neighbor. And then skip down to verse 31 of, of 1 Corinthians 10. I think it's on the second slide there. Skip down to verse 31. 1 Corinthians 10, he says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Why? Because you're a, you're a child of the king. You've been set free. So now do everything to point to this king in whose kingdom you live and whose child you are. He says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense, the same language here that Jesus gives, same word. Give no offense to Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. So don't give any offense to to people who are outside the kingdom, who are legalists, or don't give any offense to, to people who are pagans, and don't give any offense to people here in the church. He says, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved that's what jesus is getting at to peter here he's saying peter you're a child of the king and if you're a child of the king you're free but use your freedom to serve other people and don't give you any offense and actually in, in galatians five thirteen, it, it, it says that for you were called galatians five thirteen says for you were called to freedom you were called to freedom You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. That's that's a principle that we're seeing here. Now, just for a moment, think about, I was was doing lots of reading about uh, World War II recently and about how, what it was like to live in concentration camps. And I was thinking if I was a, if I was a Jewish prisoner in a concentration camp and, and I was able to get free, and, and actually the funny story is I was reading about how Monopoly games were used often to free prisoners out of 
concentration camps, they would, um, the U.S. intelligence and the British intelligence snuck little maps and, and money and, and files and things like that into the middle of a monopoly boards and then delivered them to these concentration camps and, and to other U.S. prisoner of war camps, and so they would give it free. So I'm imagining, boy, if I was free and I, I discovered my freedom really in monopoly board and, and I got free... And I went out of the concentration camp. I wonder, could I really live with myself if I didn't make some effort to free everybody else there? I thought, boy, that'd be, that'd be tough. Especially if my family or my friends were back in that concentration camp still. Wouldn't you want to go and get them out? Wouldn't you want to rescue them? Or if you weren't physically able, wouldn't you at least want to say, you know what, I'm going to tell you everything there is to know about this camp so that we can get them free because we've got to get them free. They're going to go to the death chamber. They're going to go to the gas chamber. We've got to free them up. You probably meet with the allies. You give them whatever information you could. You could you'd strategize about how to free the prisoners. You'd strategize about how to get messages into them so that they could hear about how to get freedom. You would strategize about how to break them out. You might even go and do it yourself, especially if it was your family. I doubt anybody could hold you back. And this is the same kind of motivation that now as, as children who've been set free, we're no longer under the rule of the evil king. We're no longer in a concentration camp of the devil and a bondage to sin. Now we're free to please God. So wouldn't you want to go? Wouldn't you want to live in such a way that you could help get them out? The others who were there. So Jesus says, let's not give offense. Let's not put a stumbling block in front of those who were once fellow prisoners. And I can't think, but, but Peter probably had that interaction with Jesus in mind as he wrote his epistles to the church Later in life, like almost 25, 30 years later, Peter writes to the church who are under, they've already seen the emperor Caligula years earlier. If you don't know anything about Caligula, he was a nasty, nasty man, a terrible emperor. He was cruel, he was tyrannical. And then they've lived through him, and they had a little bit of hope for a while with Claudius, and then now they're living under Nero. Nero was a brutal, evil emperor and Peter probably had this interaction with Jesus in mind and he writes to them to the church in first Peter 2 9 he says but you are a chosen race he reminds them of who they are he says but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light he reminds them once you weren't a people but now you are a people once you'd not received mercy but now you've received mercy You've been set free out of the concentration camp. He says, beloved, because of that, he says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners. What does that word mean? Is it as temporary residents? That's what Peter's saying here. It's what Jesus was saying. You're a son of the king. You're no longer under obligation to this earthly kingdom. Peter says, as sojourners, as temporary citizens here, he says, as exiles from another kingdom, he says, how should you live? He says, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And Peter's writing in a time when Christians around him would have been put in jail. They would have had their lands, their money confiscated. They may have had their children taken from them. They may have been beaten and abused. And a few years after Peter wrote this letter, there would be Christians who were put to death for their faith. And Peter 
shockingly, in the midst of a corrupt kingdom, he's not advocating for a system of rebellion against the kingdoms of this earth. And Jesus isn't either. He's saying this kingdom of the earth, this earthly kingdom, this earthly temple system, this earthly kingdom has no authority over you, but don't give offense. Peter picked up on that same idea and then in 1 Peter 2, just a few verses later in verse 12, he says, so if you really understand that you've received mercy, if you really understand that you're a child of the king, if you really understand now who you are and what mercy you've received is gonna affect how you live. Look in verse 12 of 1 Peter 2. I think we have it on the overheads for you. He says, because you're sojourners now, in verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Don't give offense. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And then he tells them something even more shocking. He tells them what it looks like to not give offense. He says, be subject and listen to this in the context that he's writing under the Roman Empire, under an evil empire, emperor of Nero, having seen Caligula come and go. Now Nero has risen to power. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. That is shocking. You know, as Christians, uh, we, we can fall prey to this temptation to complain about our government to complain about our leaders, and we can fall temptation, fall prey to the temptation to say, you know what, I'm not actually going to give honor to them. I'm not going to be subject to them. And then you got to think about Peter and the people he's writing to, or Jesus when he's talking to Peter originally. And he says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And then he gets even more shocking. He says, whether it be to the emperor as supreme... I'm guessing they didn't like that. They didn't like Supreme Emperor Nero. He says, or to governors is sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Even in the midst of the corrupt government, he's saying that government was ultimately put there for the good of God's people. He says, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Don't give offense, do good. Live as people who are free. And then he explains, what does it look like to live as people are free? See, Peter's expounding on what Jesus told him. You're free, so what does it look like to live as people who are free? Don't give offense. He says, look down your Bibles again at verse 17. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Don't use your freedom as an excuse to live for yourself and pretend that that's because of your freedom. So if you're around somebody who doesn't drink alcohol, and they'll say, I'm free, and I'm going to drink alcohol around them. Or I'm free, I'm going to have a smoke, or whatever it is. Whatever area that you're free in, in Christ Jesus, he says, don't use this as an excuse to just gratify desires of your flesh. Don't use your freedom as a cover for evil. He says, but living as servants of God, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God. And then he gives another implication of what does it look like to live where people is free? And I guess it would have been a hard pill to swallow in that 60 AD or whatever it was. He says, fear God. He says, honor the emperor. Let that, let that just sink in for a moment. Do you honor the earthly institutions that you disagree with? Do you honor the earthly leaders that you disagree with? If not, you might not understand that you're free. Because if you understand that you're free and under no obligation according to God to them, then you actually be free to give them honor. You understand that? 
if I realize that ultimately my hope does not rest in an earthly leader, then I'm free to honor any earthly leader no matter how awful they are because I can honor the fact that God put them there even if they're an evil emperor because I've been set free. I don't have to live like this world is the most important thing. I don't have to live like my hopes rise and fall based on who's going to be in office or who got elected or who didn't get elected. I don't have to, to live with my hope based on how expensive it is to live in this country, how expensive healthcare is and there isn't. I don't have to live based on those hopes. I'm free to say, you know what? I can honor the emperor. I can, I can give honor to all institutions here because, you know what? I'm living for something else. I have a king. And so I'm not bothered by saying, you know, it's no big deal to me to honor even earthly evil rulers. Why? Because I know that I have a ruler whose child I am and I'm free. And our goal is that others might see our good deeds and glorify God. Our freedom means we don't live as a cover-up to do what we want, but instead our freedom so we can live as servants of God. Not just love the brotherhood, but love those who don't deserve it, honor those who don't deserve it. Why? Because you're free. Use your freedom in a way that people might see your good deeds and honor God. I can't imagine paying taxes. You know, earlier Jesus um, had been answering the teachers of the law that came up to him and they said, hey, um, is, it, is it lawful for you to pay taxes? Meaning, is it lawful for you as a good Jew who was a member of God's kingdom, is it lawful for you to pay taxes to support this evil empire? And Jesus says to them, yeah, yes, it is. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Render to God what's God's. And I can't imagine as Peter's writing this and as Jesus has said this and they're making applications to their real lives it wasn't easy. I can't imagine Peter saying, you know, honor the emperor. Pay taxes to Nero, the same man that just took your wife into prison, the same man who maybe has confiscated your neighbor's lands, the same man who has, has put the apostle Paul in jail, as I write. Pay taxes to support that. You know, that, that takes away all excuses for us to to, to not pay taxes. You know, I've heard this, this awful, awful argument by Christians saying that well, because we're free, we don't, really don't recognize the kingdoms of this earth, so we don't have to um, pay taxes. We don't have to honor people. We don't have to do those kinds of things. We don't because we live for a different kind of kingdom. Well, it's not what Jesus preached. He says, but to give no offense, honor. Honor every human institution. Honor the emperor. Be subject. Pay taxes, including cash. If you doesn't mean you don't try to change things. It means that where, as long as the land that you're living in is not telling you to disobey God's law, that you can do whatever they're asking of you because you're free. Because you're free. You can actually be destitute because you're free. Because you realize, I have a king and a father who will provide for me. I don't have to worry about it. And it may mean hardship for us. It may mean difficulty if you live this way, not giving offense to people. It may mean you have to give up things. It may mean you have to give up practices and habits and things that you like to do for the good of those around you so they might hear the gospel message. It might mean that you have to change the way you live in order to be winsome to other people so as to not give offense. It may mean you have to keep your mouth shut at times and not give your opinion on things that are not eternal so that you can 
win people for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it may mean we have to trust God even for the ability to do that. And that's the final truth that we're going to wrap up with. It's really that children of the king are free to trust him to provide. Remember there's a miracle in this, par- in this parable. There's a miracle here. And what is Jesus trying to do? You see, Jesus, he could have just said, hey, Peter, by the way, look in your right pocket, and then you'll find a shekel. Now go and give that. I mean, you know, Jesus, he can create something from nothing. He is the God who creates ex nihilo, out of nothing. So it would be no feat for him to create money. Or he'd say, Peter, look down at your feet, look in the dirt, and you'll find a coin. Or he might have just said, hey, Peter, by the way, somebody's going to come and give you some money in just a minute, and they did, you know. He, he could have done this any other way, but why did Jesus do this miracle this way? It's because he wanted Peter to understand that, Peter, if you're a child of the king, you can trust the king to provide. And Peter, if you're a child of the king, you can trust the king to provide, in, in, even in those times when it means you have to give up, and it means you, you have to give, you have to pay taxes, you have to give of yourself, and it might mean that you don't know where the money's gonna come from, and it might be difficult, but Peter, you can trust in the king to provide, and I'm gonna give you a little object lesson here. And so he gives them this, this really amazing miracle. It seems like a small thing, but I want you to think about it for a minute. How... How amazing it is. So think about it. He says, Peter, go and cast your hook in the ocean, in the sea, in the Sea of Galilee there. And um, he didn't tell Peter, go down to this specific spot in this cove. He says, Peter, go, go to the sea. And so Peter goes to the sea, and he says, Peter, um, cast your hook in. And then where do you cast your hook in? The very first fish that you bring up, open the fish's mouth, and you're going to find a shekel. Now think about all the things that would have had to transpire for that to happen. Somebody somewhere would have had to drop a shekel, about two days' wages, in in the sea somewhere, and before it hit bottom, uh, a fish would have had to snatch that up, but not swallow it all the way. Just kind of caught it in his mouth, which fish normally gulp and swallow things. So this fish would have been abnormal. It also would have had to show up at just the right time when somebody was dropping a shekel and grab it and then hold it there. And then this fish would have had to wait with that shekel in his mouth, however long that would have taken, until Peter shows up and there's this hook. And then that fish would have had to show up in the exact spot that Peter randomly went to you know, it's not like Jesus was holding this fish and says, okay, now, go ahead, right there, right there, right there. You know, so, okay, okay, Peter, put a hook in, here you go. But in a sense, I guess he was, right? So this fish shows up in the exact spot it needed to be with this coin, the exact amount of money that he needed for him and Peter to pay, and he shows up at the exact right moment, and as soon as this hook comes, the fish bites the hook, but doesn't swallow the coin still, and think about that feat for a fish, and then Peter, the very first fish that Peter catches, it, now no other fish could get that hook ahead of time, And so this fish would be the first one to get it and pulls it up and waits there until Peter pulls this coin out so that Peter could be provided to honor and give no offense as a child of the king. Why is Jesus doing this? He's doing this because he wants to see the children of the the king are free to trust in him to be able to do what he calls us to do. You're free to trust in him to provide if you no longer have to worry about the fact of, oh no, where's my next paycheck going to come from? Yes, you, you, you need to work, be diligent, have a job, but if you lose your job, you can trust the king will somehow provide for you. He'll somehow make a way for you. It doesn't mean he's going to make a miracle like this happen, but there's a principle here that if you are a child of the king, he's going to give you just what you need. He didn't give him, you know, 50 shekels. He gave him a shekel. It was just what he needed to pay the debt that he just obligated himself to. And so... Jesus is showing us that 
Children of the king are free to trust in him to provide. He's basically saying, Simon, you can trust in me to direct people and fish and nature in the timing of, of your timing and your path to the right place at the right time so that I will provide for you in this seemingly random, seemingly chance circumstance. Now, if, Peter, if Jesus hadn't told Peter what he was going to do, Peter might have done the same thing. But he may have been like, oh, good luck. Wow, what good luck I have. I just discovered a coin. But Jesus told him ahead of time so that Peter would know that ultimately it's the king who provides for his free children to not be so consumed or worried about how they're going to obey God. But listen, trust him to provide for you to obey, for to provide for you to not give offense, provide for you to proclaim the good news. And I can imagine, imagine Peter after Jesus told him what was going to happen and Peter goes and does that. Can you imagine how just dumbfounded and happy Peter must have been? I wish it recorded a lot of these reactions, you know. But I can imagine Jesus like, Peter, go and do that. And Peter's like, sure. And so he goes and he casts this thing in and he's just obeying Jesus because, you know, he's the son of God. And so he does this and he pulls it up and he's like, no way. Really? Seriously? No way. And then you imagine the joy that Peter must have had as he went back to that, those temple tax collectors, and he goes, here, by the way, here's a shekel. You want to hear about where I got it? It's pretty cool. He would have had great joy. It actually would have enhanced the message that he would have shared. He would have had, he would have had joy even in, in paying taxes. See, the children of the king are free to live for him, trusting in the king to provide we can trust that no matter what God's calling you to do, if you understand the fact that you are a child of the king and that you're free, then you'll also understand that no good king withholds what's needed for life from his children. If you were a benevolent and good king, or maybe you were a benevolent and good father, to put it into Jesus' words, if you're a father and your child comes to you and they're hungry and they say, hey, can I have some bread? You know, no good father would withhold bread. And Jesus says, how much more will your heavenly father not withhold from you every good thing if you ask? Why? Because he's a good king and he's not gonna withhold what you need because you're his child and he sets you free, and he's going to enable you to live freely. Amen? Well, let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you've set us free. Thank you that you've made us your children. God, I pray that we would live in the good of that, that we would be astounded by that, that we would start to live understanding that we really are your free children so that we would not be so consumed with the cares and worries of this world and, and wonder where, where's our provision going to come from, Lord? Or maybe we're in, stuck in a situation that we find helpless and hopeless and we think there's no way out. There's no way that those people in my life will change. There's no way the situation is ever going to change. There's no way that I can do this. Lord, I pray that all those who are feeling that way right now, Lord, would understand that you as a good king will not withhold anything from his children that you're able to direct people and hearts and minds and nature to provide what's needed. You're able, 
Lord, to sustain us, to uphold us, to give us all that we need. So God, I pray that all of us here would, would just see that for ourselves, that we would we rejoice in that freedom. And Lord, I pray that you would create fresh confidence in us to live for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for being with us this morning. Um, we are grateful that we get to gather together. Um, I, I want you to live in the good of this kingdom this week. I want you to be affected by that. And maybe a good way to start to do that today is to go and share, hey, you know what, for me, I think what it looks like to live free is this. All right, can I ask you that? Can I ask that of you? Great. Well, may God bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you, be gracious to you, and give you peace. You're dismissed.